This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. This invitation today to come speak to you. Um, and I'm going to be speaking uh, about something that Beth alluded to already within her presentation. The question of how IDPs fit within the comprehensive framework as well as within the Global Compact. Now, last September we saw a remarkable step taken when the General Assembly passed the New York Declaration of for Refugees and Migrants. Can everyone hear me? No? Let me try and get it higher. How's that? Can people hear me? I'll keep talking to you. Uh, last, uh, last September, we saw a remarkable step when the General Assembly passed the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants, which started a process leading both to UNHCR's new comprehensive refugee response framework and to the ongoing process to create a global compact on refugees. And it's important to look at the actual language of that declaration. In it, the member states of the United Nations made several important acknowledgements. Among them was the idea that there existed, to quote the declaration, a shared responsibility to manage large movements of refugees and migrants in a humane, sensitive, compassionate, and people-centered manner. In addition, the shared responsibility envisions international cooperation among countries of origin, transit, and destination, and included a specific statement that the international community would work with countries of origin to strengthen their capacities. But the Declaration also briefly acknowledged a third important group beyond refugees and migrants, the internally displaced. And when I say briefly acknowledged, uh, there is literally three mentions of them uh, within the Declaration. But importantly, it noted that within the Declaration, the member states recognized the very large number of people who are displaced within national borders and the possibility that such persons might seek protection and assistance in other countries as refugees or migrants. The Declaration also noted the need for reflection on effective strategies to ensure adequate protection and assistance for internally displaced persons and to prevent and reduce such displacement. I go back to the Declaration because while we have seen significant development of these ideas of shared responsibilities underpinning the discussion of the Global Refugee Compact and UNHCR's robust commitment to the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework, the issue of IDPs in this process has been missing until quite recently. UNHCR sees the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework as having four clear aims. The first is to ease pressure on countries that welcome and host refugees. The second is to build self-reliance of refugees. The third is to expand access to resettlement in third countries and other complementary pathways. And the fourth is to foster conditions that enable refugees voluntarily to return to their home countries. Within that fourth aim, UNHCR has identified within one of its concept papers the need for specific attention to rebuilding within countries of origin, conditions conducive to voluntary and sustainable return, including by providing technical, financial, and other support to countries of origin, but also to help build institutional readiness and to include returnees and reintegration within national development plans as well as within UN country team frameworks. It is this fourth aim in particular that I want to address today because it highlights a key tension that underpins the Global Compact on refugees as proposed, that it is disconnecting the problem of protecting and assisting refugees from the problem of protecting and assisting the internally displaced. Within the documents so far issued by UNHCR with respect to the Compact, IDPs receive almost no mention. Now, this issue has recently been acknowledged. As Beth noted within her presentation, last week at the uh, uh, 
sorry, last week at the uh, fourth dialogue around uh, uh, solutions, the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre, a Geneva-based NGO supported by the Norwegian Refugee Council, advocated and successfully pushed for changes on these issues, including a recommendation which was endorsed that countries of origin for returning refugees needed to also integrate the guiding principles on internal displacement into their national laws and policies, and that member states, UN agencies, and their partners needed to expand the collection of data on the entire displacement continuum, including both IDPs and refugees, and including questions not just of initial flight, but also of return. At this stage, these simply represent an endorsement of these ideas and a rec recommendation that these two issues need to be retained within the Global Compact's program of action. But what I would like to do today in my talk is to highlight why these are actually critically important to the fourth aim of the CRRF to enable refugees to voluntarily return home. Now, supporting voluntary return programs is obviously important. Voluntary return has long been the single most important form of durable solutions for refugees. But as this chart shows, what we've seen is both the number and percentage of refugees who have been able to return home voluntarily has fallen significantly over the past decade, though with a slight increase last year to some 400,000 people. Now that's in terms of refugee return. As you're all familiar with, of course, IDPs significantly outnumber refugees globally. In fact, IDPs generally have been approximately double the size of the refugee population. There are currently approximately 40 million internally displaced persons in the world who have been displaced due to conflict including 6.9 million who fled in 2016. An additional 24.2 million were displaced that year by natural disasters. The decline in IDP numbers last year reflects the fact that while refugee return has been relatively stagnant, we saw a significant increase in IDP returns. Some 7 million IDPs were able to return compared to some 2.3 million in 2015. Now the issues between IDPs and refugees are linked in a number of important ways. First, obviously, there is a strong correlation between IDP and refugee movements. The countries that tend to produce the most refugees also tend to produce the most IDPs, including such countries such as Syria, South Sudan, and Afghanistan. Second, though, the IDP refugee relationship is dynamic at the individual level as well, with the decisions that forced migrants make while bound up in macro-level factors, directly influencing their decisions to flee within their own country, to seek asylum in another country, and the decision whether to make the return journey. As the New York Declaration acknowledged, IDPs can become refugees, but returning refugees too can easily become IDPs following their return. Globally, however, due to a lack of data, we have no clear picture of how often either IDPs become refugees or returning refugees becoming IDPs. As IDMC noted in their annual report this year, to quote them, there is currently not enough research or data to understand the exact relationship between internal displacement, cross-border movement, and return. It is clear that the risk of returning refugees becoming IDPs significantly increases, though, following unprepared, involuntary, or premature returns. To give one example, that of Afghanistan, alongside approximately 372,000 refugees whose returns were supported by UNHCR last year, provided with, among other aspects, $400 cash grants each. Amidi and Lakini, and work for the uh, US Institute for Peace, have found that there was approximately 682,000 spontaneous returns of refugees from both Pakistan and Iran, primarily not because they were making voluntary decisions to return, but because of increasingly uh, difficult circumstances, especially in Pakistan, 
where the government is instituting a lot more restrictions on refugees seeking to get them to return to Afghanistan. And yet, because of this spontaneous movement, as Admiti and Lakini note, returnees are entering a country racked by violence, economic instability, and a lack of basic services in most part of the country, all dynamics which are likely to trigger internal displacement. Therefore, it is critical that in considering voluntary returns as an aspect of the Global Refugee Compact, we also consider the legal protections available to internally displaced persons. Now, IDPs sit within a completely different legal structure than refugees, as many of you will be familiar with. While refugees are protected by the 1951 Refugee Convention, IDPs are protected at the global level only by the 1998 Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement. While the guiding principles are soft law, they draw directly on international human rights, humanitarian, and analogous refugee law to provide a clear set of rights for internally displaced persons. They provide us first with a factual description of IDPs, not a legal definition, since it's not a convention, but they describe IDPs as persons or groups of persons who have been forced or obliged to flee or to leave their homes or places of habitual residence, in particular as a result of or in order to avoid the effects of armed conflict, situations that are generalized violence, violations of human rights or natural or human-made disasters, and who have not crossed an internationally recognized state border. Now, while the principles themselves aren't hard law, this definition has entered into widespread use. And in fact, we've really seen practices in the United Nations since the guiding principles were introduced crystallize around this specific definition. In addition, it's important to note that this definition is both universal, covering IDPs throughout the world, but also that it's not limited to specific events. As you can see, language in particular uh, allows other causes to be introduced into the principles as well. Now, beyond the definition, the principles note a number of other aspects. They note that IDPs continue to possess the same rights as other citizens in both domestic and international law, and specify that IDPs shall not be discriminated against on the grounds that they are internally displaced, and that they have a wide range of specific rights. Guiding principles actually identify specific groups who may be needed, needing increased levels of assistance or protection. The guiding principles also cover issues related to return. And I think this is a critical element here because they include both return, resettlement, and reintegration for internally displaced persons. In so doing, the principles really mimic the durable solution structure that we think about in terms of refugees. The principles note explicitly that competent authorities have the primary duty to establish conditions which allow IDPs to return home voluntarily or to resettle or reintegrate elsewhere in the country. They also specify that these authorities need to ensure the full participation of IDPs in planning and management. And the principles specify that these authorities also need to assist returned or resettled IDPs to recover their property and possessions to the extent possible or to otherwise provide appropriate compensation or forms of just reparations. Now, while the principles themselves don't specify when displacement ends, follow-on work by the Brookings Burn Project on Internal Displacement specified in 2010 uh, the idea that a durable solution occurs when IDPs no longer have any specific assistance and protection needs linked to their displacement and that they can enjoy their human rights without discrimination on account of their displacement. This study recommended a two-step process. The first step sees IDPs provided with information and active participation to enable their voluntary decision whether to return, resettle, or locally integrate. Following this decision, the second step includes continuing monitoring until IDPs are sure of their safety, 
of their rights and non-discrimination and after they have received reintegration support. Now, while the guiding principles themselves are only soft law, they've actually been widely recognized. As Beth noted, at the United Nations 2005 World Summit, the outcome declaration there recognized the principles as an important international framework for IDP protection. And we can see routine references to the guiding principles within all the major bodies of the United Nations. In addition, we're seeing a growing pattern of legalization for the principles at the regional and domestic level. Within Africa, for example, the 2006 Great Lakes Protocol and Protection and Assistance to IDPs, which 12 countries are signatories to, have brought the guiding principles into hard law there. In addition, in 2009, the African Union introduced the Convention for the Protection and Assistance of Internally Displaced Persons in Africa, aka the Kampala Convention, which entered into force in 2012, and once again takes many of the rights specified in the guiding principles and brings them into regional hard law. Further, at the domestic level, we've seen a very interesting pattern where some 40 countries with past or present IDP situations have adopted domestic legislation or policies specifically on IDP issues. This is a growing pattern which really only started in the 1990s. Now, it's to these policies that I'd like to now turn. The adoption of such policies beyond the discussions that happened in Geneva last week have been routinely encouraged by the General Assembly and other UN bodies, and UNHCR specifically notes that as part of its specific commitment to IDPs, it supports states' efforts to adopt, update, or prepare national policies on IDPs. Now, I've recently completed a review of some 69 legislative instru instruments and policies which have been passed by these 40 states up until the middle of this year. This, of course, doesn't reflect all states with IDP situations, only those states which are willing to acknowledge that they have internally displaced persons and that they're willing to take some steps to respond to their assistance and protection needs. Now, it's interesting looking at these different laws and policies, how much they reflect guiding principles, as well as other issues around international law and domestic law. Across these laws and policies, for example, there is clear acceptance that IDPs require some form of international protection, which is actually a pretty big commitment on the part of these states. Not only do a majority provide for the provision, uh, allow for the provision of international assistance, some 46 laws or policies explicitly note that, but 41 laws and policies also note explicitly that IDPs are protected by international law, and 41 also note that they are also protected by some form of domestic law, such as within a state's constitution. Most policies and laws also clearly indicate a government bureaucracy which will take a lead role in assisting and protecting them. These are generally either existing bureaucracies being assigned a new role, or their new bureaucracies being completed, uh, being created entirely uh, to deal with the issue. Unfortunately, when it comes to the guiding principles, the linkages are less clear between these policies and laws and the principles themselves. Only 30 of these policies and laws explicitly mention the guiding principles. In addition, only about 19 explicitly endorse its IDP definition. In fact, many of these laws and policies either do not provide a definition of who IDPs are, or they introduce a more restrictive definition than that of the principles, such as it may be a requirement that they're forced to flee only by rebel groups rather than state actors, there may be a limited time in which they can qualify for IDP status, and so on. Beyond their content, there is also the question of whether or not these laws and policies are actually being implemented on the ground. And here, too, the record is mixed. I've examined the implementation of these policies on a five-point scale, ranging from situations of literally no implementation, where a policy or law has only, made, only exist in a draft stage for years, 
or where it may have been passed, but there is no evidence that the government's actually moved forward to implement it. Through to strong implementation, where the law or policy is not only in accordance with the guiding principles, but that we can also see clear evidence of ongoing government support for it, including through identified organizational support and significant financial contributions by the government. Unfortunately, less than a third of these policies have been clearly implemented without significant problems. More often, ad hoc or limited implementation means that IDPs are not adequately covered and that even when problems are correctly identified, there are no steps taken to fix them. Alternatively, good faith efforts on the part of governments uh, to introduce laws and policies may be stymied by domestic opposition, which wasn't taken into account. This may be within government, this may be at, say, the provincial or state level. In 11 cases, the laws and policies have never been implemented, either remaining in draft form for years or simply reflecting aspirational claims, which the government was unable or unwilling to follow. Further, while international support as part of the drafting process has been quite important in a lot of these laws and policies, with actors like UNHCR, the NRC, IOM, and other actors providing support, it has led to stronger policies. It's clear on paper that these policies where there's been strong international support tend to much closely, uh, more closely reflect the guiding principles and tend to talk, talk about full forms of durable solutions, not just focusing, for example, on return. However, the practice of implementation here is less clear. Of the 33 laws and policies which were drafted with such assistance, um, only 13 of these have actually been robustly implemented in a strong manner. An equal number, 13, have been implemented but with significant issues, while seven of these laws and policies drafted with international support have not been implemented at all. To give a bit of example of these dynamics, I had mentioned Afghanistan earlier, and it is a good example of both of these problems. The government's 2013 national policy on internally displaced persons has been described by the IDMC as a landmark which established both a comprehensive framework of rights for IDPs, as well as acknowledging all three forms of durable solutions for them. In drafting the policy, the government was assisted by a range of international actors, including UNHCR, OCHA, the NRC, and IOM. And yet, its implementation has been very problematic for three reasons. Of course, most obviously is the issue of the Taliban, an ongoing civil war situation, and with the Taliban insurgency now uh, controlling as much as 45% of Afghanistan. Equally, though, we've seen significant implementation problems within the government. The Ministry of Refugees and Repatriation, which has been tasked with leading policy implementation, is widely seen as being a ministry which simply lacks political clout, lacks the resources to do so, and lacks capacity. In addition, while many IDPs have expressed an interest in Afghanistan and integrating locally, land rights issues mean that at the provincial level, governments haven't moved forward on plans of action to actually implement these policies because of concerns over the fact that these IDPs may and, uh, increase tensions in domestic communities. Therefore, we can see a range of different issues whenever we're looking at the implementations of these different policies. Now, how then do we address these issues as the global compact process moves forward? Well, first, and, and don't get me wrong here, international support for governments to adopt IDP policies and laws is very important but it's an important first step alone. Ongoing monitoring and support for governments that adopt these policies and laws is also essential. The laws and policies which have been significantly implemented, that have been implemented well, all generally share three issues. The first, and an obvious one, is that there's actually a strong domestic commitment 
the government actually wants to move forward with the policy. In a lot of cases, it doesn't want to. And particularly with when there are cases of international sport, in some cases the policy gets drafted and there's no clear local ownership within government of the policy, one of the reasons why it doesn't move forward. In addition to having a government that's committed to the policy, it's also critical that we see mechanisms of domestic accountability, which have led to successful implementation. In some cases, these mechanisms may exist in the, the form of independent institutions at the domestic level, which can make sure the government uh, adheres to its promises. So for example, in Colombia, a strong legal framework exists in part because the Colombian Constitutional Court will actually hold the government there to account for ineffective implementation. In addition, another form of accountability can be through the domestic, to the domestic population. So following the 2015 presidential elections in Sri Lanka, for example, the new government strongly committed to a renewed policy implementation process, and since that election has introduced much clearer and more comprehensive policies than had previously existed. Ongoing international support, though, is also critical, not just at the drafting stage, but also at the implementation stage. So for example, in Timor-Leste, for example, following uh, uh, significant internal displacement due to conflicts in 2006, a uh, strong policy was adopted, but its implementation was hindered by a lack of government capacity. However, international support here enabled the government to actually ensure that durable solutions for the IDP populations existed, including closing most IDP camps within three years of displacement. In addition, international support helped the government to provide compensation to a wide range of these IDPs. To conclude, therefore, it is important that these domestic policies and laws are supported that we see movements forward on them to provide IDPs with protection and assistance at the domestic level. International actors, though, need to work with governments to create clear accountability mechanisms to ensure that governments are accountable at the domestic level, but also that they're accountable at the international level. That the international community is prepared to provide these governments with assistance where necessary, but also that we hold them to account when they don't live up to their obligations. Thank you.